you have your Bibles and turn with me to the first book of the Bible, fairly easy to find, Genesis. And uh, we pick up our reading from a few weeks ago, we're in chapter 37. In two weeks' time I'll be in chapter 39, which means next week I'm in chapter 38. So you're going to be reading Matthew 1 before next week. And let's pray as we read God's Word. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. I think that, thank you that every word comes through your hand, that every word is inspired. And Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Amen. Genesis 37 and verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations, this is the told of, of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhar and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colours. But when his father saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Should I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here am I, here I am. And he said to them, him, Go, now see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come, now let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what became of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colours that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. 
The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers, and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colours and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal had devoured him. Joseph was without doubt torn into pieces. And Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guards. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. When I was growing up, um, it probably dates me a little bit, but I remember Jason Donovan singing, I closed my eyes through back the curtain to see for certain what I thought I knew. It's not in the hymn book, by the way, but <laughs> far, far away someone was weeping and the world was sleeping. Any dream will do. That's from the musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And rarely has such catchy music. I'm sure some of you have got that playing around in your head right now. I know I do. Has been used to get a Bible story so completely wrong. And the, the narrator of the musical's prologue is, Some folks dream of wonders they'll do before their time on this planet is through. Some just don't have anything planned. They hide their hopes and their heads in the sand. Now, I don't say who is wrong, who is right, but if by chance you're here for the night, then all I need is an hour or two to tell a tale of a dreamer like you. We all dream a lot. Some are lucky, some are not. But if you think it, won't it, dream it, then it's real. You are what you feel. It's like, it's like somebody said, let's get all the Bible theologians in here and then tell me what the story of Joseph is about and then Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice will make a musical exactly the opposite of that. <laughs> we all dream a lot, some are lucky, some are not. But if you think it, want it, dream it, then it's real, you are what you feel. What a, what a, what a catastrophic definition of the world. For the musical is about dreamers who follow their dream and it's very clever, it has Pharaohs like Elvis, it's all really, really silly. But the real story is about God who oversees and superintends all of history. If God thinks it, if God wants it, then it is real and it takes no luck at all. It is called providence. The almighty and ever-present power of God 
by which he upholds with his hand heaven and earth and rules over them. The leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, health, sickness, prosperity, poverty. All things come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. That is the doctrine of providence. Sometimes we refer to God's sovereignty, and that's a good term as well. But providence is God's sovereignty for his people. God is sovereign over all things. Providence refers to all of God's might and sovereign decree and unrivaled strength been exercised for you if you belong to God. So listen to how Joseph summarises to his brothers his experience, this experience, looking back, of being sold into slavery, being put into prison, and rising to second in command in Egypt. You know it well. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, we're not there yet, but it's hard to read any part of the Joseph story without having that in mind. You, Joseph, did not say, you meant it for evil and God turned it for good. It's kind of true in a way, but he says he goes further than that. It's not that God just reacted and saw that you meant something and then God, who is the ultimate chess player was able to checkmate your evil plans and turn it for good. But it's more than that. Joseph said, you meant it for evil, and at the same time you were meaning it for evil. God was meaning, not just responding, he was meaning that same activity for good. That he would save his people from famine, and he would constitute them a na nation in his Egypt. So at the same time they were acting out of wicked schemes, God was acting through the wicked schemes for his own good purposes. God is not merely a responder to pick up the broken pieces of your life and put them together. Don't have too low a view of God's power, God's providence in your life. They did evil. They were responsible. They sold him into slavery. They were morally culpable. But at the same time, mysteriously but wonderfully, God was working. God knew what he was doing. He did exactly what he had intended to do. So that is providence, and that is the point of the Joseph story, as we'll see this, meeting, this morning and in the weeks ahead. But first of all, I want us to think about the... I've kind of only got two points, but I might have a few sub-points to the points on the points on the way. But I want you to see, first of all, the predicament that the Holy Family is in. Your family, my family, if you're a believer. And I want us to conclude about briefly looking at the lessons that we should draw from this for our life. Whatever predicament you find yourself here this morning, you might be here and you might be in a predicament and you don't know how to get out of it. So first of all, how bad things are for the people of God, the chosen family at the end of Genesis 37. This is the, this is the chosen family. This is not a story of the also-rans. And then later on, 
we, you know, we get the glory story and the unicorns of the, of the chosen family. This is not the story of the also-rans. This is the story of the promised family. And look at how bad things are. Well, look at Jacob. Jacob outrightly favours Joseph because he is the son of his old age, because he's the son of his favourite wife. And we see in Genesis, we see in the Bible, the problems that come from favouritism. So Jacob overtly has a favourite son. He gave him a coat of many colours. It's an exuberant, extravagant, lavish OTT coat. It was a lavish coat. And not only that, it was a sign of authority. Because to have bright, brilliant colours was extravagant, but it was also very hard to come by. So in some ways, this was a regal coat. This was a royal coat. A bit like a, one of those ermine cloaks you see people wearing sometimes. Not me, but in the House of Lords or whatever. But it was likely signifying to all the other brothers that Jacob intended to bless Joseph over them. So you see Joseph's brothers, Jacob's sons, grown to despise their younger sibling and the family is torn apart. 21 times in Genesis 37 we have the word brother or brothers. So it is meant to be seen as a family but it's been torn apart. We have the word hate in verse 4, 5 and 8 and it's not just hate, you know, or I hate you, it's not that we're getting long anymore, you nick than my football kind of thing, it's a strong word. They can't stand to be around their brother. They hate him, verse 4. They hate him even more, verse 5. And they hate him even more, more, more in verse 8. They want him out of their life. In verse 11, they are jealous. This family is a disaster. It is discouraging, but it's in the Bible. And it might be a little bit encouraging because our families can be messy. So that's Jacob. And then you've got Reuben. They want to kill him, but Reuben intervenes. I'm not sure. Is Reuben having a change of heart and wants to have mercy on Joseph? Or is Reuben kind of calculating that, yeah, I'm the oldest, I'm going to get it in the neck. Um, and he's already in the doghouse with his dad because he slept with one of his concubines and he doesn't even want to be more in trouble. I'm not sure of Reuben's motivation. But at least Reuben wants to rescue Joseph. He, he comes back. He obviously wasn't with them in that in, you know, intervening little section. So intention was just throwing him in the pit and then Reuben would come back to rescue him. But he comes back wherever he was, wherever he was in the field, and he finds he's gone. Joseph has gone. And Judah, we'll hear more about Judah. And chapter 38 is the story of Judah. But Judah is the fourth born. And Judah comes, and again, we're not sure. Is Judah trying to help Joseph? Or is it just about making money? But he saves his life by saying, what profit it is, is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him. So he, Judah saves Joseph's life. So the Midianites, the Ishmaelites, these caravanning, Midianites, Ishmaelites, not Canaanites exactly, but from the earlier division of Ishmael, 
they fake his death with a coat and some goat's blood. Remember that for next week. And uh, if you weren't planning to be here next week, come back and hear about goat's blood, because goat's blood comes up again in chapter 38. And they go back to Jacob to tell him the bad news. So then Jacob again, he's reaping what he has sown. Just as Jacob deceived Isaac, remember, with goat skins for his furry hands, right, all those way back, and Esau's clothes. Now, Jake, now Jacob is deceived by goat's blood and, Jacob, and, and Joseph's clothes. We're meant to see a parallel. We're meant to see a parallel. Jacob deceived Isaac by doing the same thing. The apple does not fall too far from the tree. And his sons are now deceiving him exactly the same way. Fake blood, goat's blood and Joseph's clothes. And, and Jacob ends the chapter utterly inconsolable. Verse 34 and 35. If anyone has buried a child, or I'd say even had a miscarriage, can relate to Jacob's inconsolable, indescribable grief. And his sons come with pretend comfort for a pretend crime. And as far as they know, they're never going to see Joseph again. He's as good as dead. They lie to Jacob. They deceive Jacob. They deceive him with pretend comfort. All the while, all the while allowing their father to be absolutely inconsolable. And they, and they let it go. So Jacob, for all of his ups and downs, he has never been more down than this. And then you've got the brothers. They're overcome by hatred. They're overcome by jealousy. And they plot to kill Joseph. They don't like his dreams. They don't like his words. They hated him even more for his dreams and his words. In verses 2 and 3, he gives a bad report to his father. That's probably why they hate him for his words. I don't know what the bad report was. Was Joseph exaggerating? Was Joseph indicating? Was he, was he snitching? that they'd said something bad about their father. But whatever it was, he brings a bad report. So the brothers don't like it. The brother doesn't say good things about us, he had these dreams. And he actually thinks that we're gonna bow down and worship him. You know, they see him coming from a distance. And Jacob, kind of foolishly, not really reading the room, sends Joseph out into the fields. It's quite a lack of, I think, discernment right there. He's certainly not reading the room. But understand the geography. Shechem is 50 miles away. So Joseph is going out on a dangerous journey to Shechem. And then 50 miles away, he finds an anonymous man in the field who says, what are, what are you doing here? I'm looking for my brothers. Yeah, I heard them say they're going to Dothan, which is another 15 miles away. So Joseph has travelled 65 miles away from home. And he didn't have, you know, a car in those days, so it's many days' journey. And it, this is not like Joseph can see the trouble that is coming from his brothers. He's in the back garden and he's shouting, Daddy, Daddy, rescue me! My nasty brothers are coming! No, he, he's 65 miles away from home. And they see him coming in the distance and they conspire to kill him. And at the end of the chapter you may think they've gotten their way. But they have to live with the knowledge that they've sold their youngest brother. There is Benjamin to come, but he's not on the scene right here. 
So they sold Joseph into slavery and they've wounded their father with the deepest pain imaginable. So that's the family and then you get Joseph. He travels 50, 65 miles to find his brothers. He's obedient, but he's uh, definitely not, he's not, he's not, he's not completely in, in innocent, is he? I mean, he's, he's a braggart, he's boastful, or is he naive that the effect that he has on other people? So he's a 17-year-old boy with his older brothers. He's given bad reports, and he makes a point to tell his brothers his dream. He's not very subtle about it, is he? And uh, you wonder if he's putting two and two together. He's, he's either very, very boastful, or he's a very, very naive. Even when you read it, you know, hey bros, come here, I had a crazy dream last night. You know, I had all these sheafs, and I'm here, and all the other sheafs are like this. Wild! What do you think it means? It's not going to go over very well, but not only that, he does it again. He does it again. Brothers, come here. I had a second dream. Same kind of dream, same kind of dream. And they hate him even more. And he, this, he, even this time, Jacob rebukes him, come on, that's en enough's enough. Come on, <laughs> enough's enough. It, Jacob's interesting though, isn't he? Because it's almost like in the New Testament, like we, like, you know, like we hear that Mary pondered these things in her heart. Jacob clearly thought, hmm, he was thinking, what's going on here? And he, he, he stored some of it in his heart. Joseph is thrown into a pit, which is common in that part of the world. You have these large pits, maybe 10 feet in diameter, 15 feet deep. You wouldn't get out of them without somebody throwing a rope down or you know, some kind of ladder out. They were, kind, they were used for all kinds of purposes. It might hold grain if you're out in the field. It might hold prisoners. It might even be a latrine. It might be a place, probably a place, to hold water because the Verse 24 says the pit was empty, had no water in it. So the narrator wants us to know that Joseph wasn't drowning in it, but he's thrown into this empty system in the wilderness with no way to escape. Verse 36 says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him into, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So Joseph is thinking, none of my dreams are coming true. Exactly the opposite. So at the end of Genesis 37, it appears to us that Joseph had lost everything. He'd lost his special coat, the sign of favour, which had been torn to pieces. He'd lost his home, his father, his family, his privileged position. It must have seemed to Joseph that there was no happy ending for him. Maybe you feel this morning like Jacob. Life hardly feels worth living. Your joy is gone. You refuse to be comforted. Maybe you've lost the love of your life, a husband, a wife, a child, a friend. <coughs> or maybe you feel like Joseph this morning, that nothing in your life is going the way that you thought it would. You've been betrayed by those closest to you, hated by those who love, should love you, an object of derision and jealousy. Or your hurt may not be relational. Maybe your body hurts all the time and you don't know why? Or your heart hurts all the time. Or you're missing someone you love. Or the love that was once there is no longer. Maybe you're frightened of being alone. Frightened of being childless. 
afraid of what's going to happen to your family, afraid of what's going to happen to the country. The point of Joseph's story is not that any dream will do, it's certainly not that you are what you feel, and it's absolutely not that some are lucky and some are not. The point is, Ephesians 1 verse 11, is that God works all things after the counsel of his will. This is about providence. You think of how things rotten are for the family, for the brothers, for Jacob, for Joseph. And then as you think about your pain, your predicament, what I want you to consider simply three things to be learned from Genesis 37 and from the Joseph story more broadly. If you're a Christian, you know these things. And if you're not a Christian, I'm glad that you're here and hope you consider these things. Because this is, this is the confidence that God means us to have if we're his children. Three things. God's sovereign plan is absolutely 100% certain. God's plan is absolutely certain. Almost all Christians believe in a general sense that God is in charge. Almost everyone acknowledges that. Or that all things work together for good, and those are true. God's sovereign plan from the big to the small is absolutely and certainly true. To the smallest speck, to the tiniest part of that plan. Do you really think that Vladimir Putin can derail God's plan? He, he is not. Do you think that woke school teachers can derail God's plan? No. Or trans activists, or racists, or Marxists, or socialists, or fascists, or whatever it is. Are any of these people derailing God's sovereign plan? Not a speck. Not a speck. Think of these brothers in the story, these hating, jealous brothers. At the very point where they thought most certainly to be undermined in God's silly dreams, they were at, the, at that very point setting in motion God's plan to fulfil everything Joseph had foretold. The point when they thought that they were on the victory round. They thought they had won. They were putting in motion God's plan to fulfil Joseph's dreams. At that very moment, okay, you have a dream that we're going to bow down to you. <laughs> Not a chance. We'll kill you, or better off, we'll beat you. We'll sell you off. At that moment, it must have seemed to them, we've taken the definitive step to make sure these dreams don't come true. But that was the first step to fulfilling that everything that Joseph had dreamed. Everything that God had revealed to him. And Joseph receives that same dream twice, to make absolutely certain. And after he shares the dream, everything that transpires after the dreams would seem to be making the fulfilment of the dreams impossible. If you were writing a story, okay, a legend, with the two dreams, and you were thinking in your life, what would be the next things to happen to make sure that these dreams never take place? Well, you might devise something like this. <coughs> get thrown in a pit, get sold off in slavery, forgotten by God, and God forsaken in Egypt. End of dream. But it was God's plan. It was God's plan. 
Do you really believe, my friend, not into, not into some vague general sense, but that God is in charge of everything and that God's sovereign plan is absolutely certain? Now, disease may have one set of plans. Dictators have their plans. The demons have their plans. Evil people have their plans. But all along the way, God has his plans. And all of those plans never change God's plans. Secondly, you're not at the end of your story. You're not at the end of the story. If you've been around the church for a while, you grew up with these stories. We love Genesis 37. It's, it, you know, it's the victory parade. For me, people know it's like Didier Drogba stepping up to take a penalty in the Champions League final. It's, it's, but it's like Joseph Pitt. Joseph slavery. Joseph betrayed. Joseph prison. Because you know what happens. But Joseph didn't know the end of the story. We do. Joseph didn't. And you need to remember this morning that you do not know the end in one sense of your story. We do in one sense, but not in some detail. And it's harder to enjoy the story when you're in the middle of it. Is that true? We can enjoy Genesis 37. Why? Because we read Genesis 50 verse 20. But the pain was real for Jacob. That pain was real. This is not a kind of you know, through our lens. He lived 17 years with Joseph and 17 years without him. And all the while thinking that his son had been devoured by wild beasts. So it was really, really re real for Jacob. And it was really, really real for Joseph. He wasn't singing musical numbers about any dreams will do. He wasn't. At no point at the bottom of the pit did he sing any dream will do. Or on the back of a camel on his way to Egypt did he think to himself, well this is all going to plan. Are you, are you in a pit this morning? Maybe you feel a slave in your job or a slave to a disease or enslaved to a broken relationship. You don't know what's going to get better or what's going to get worse and you don't know the future either. But you need to be convinced of this one thing, that this is not the end of the story. There is another chapter. God's plan is still unfolding. You can't see how it all fits together. But my friend, my friend, we know the one who holds it. We can't see how it fits together, but we know the one who does. Humans are resilient. There's a lot of suffering in life. But what makes suffering at its worst is suffering without hope. Without any thought that there is a plan. Without any thought that maybe somehow, someday, something about this has a purpose. And maybe this is not the end, but something, somewhere, somehow will be better. Now we don't know tomorrow. I will not stand here, cannot say here, that your life will end up like Joseph. You won't end up second in command in Egypt. I can probably tell you that. But we are not at the end of the story. And which leads us to the final lesson. If, if you are a believer this morning, if you put your trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know the end of the story and it is a happy ending.
No one can promise a happy ending. They lived happily ever after. Enid Blyton, they lived happily ever after. You can't promise that in the short term. But we can promise it in the long term. I wish, I wish, I wish I could. Any pastors would wish that they could. Say, believe it and dream it and do it and your dreams will come true. And you'll get that job. You'll get the girl. You'll have the baby. Everything will be healed. That relationship will get better. No one can promise a happy ending in the short term. So we pray, we hope, we work, we labour, we pray some more. But the cancer may not go away. Your child may not come back to sanity. The marriage may not be restored. But you keep praying, you keep believing. But we cannot take the story of Joseph and assume that the earthly story will work out good for all of us and that we end up second in command in Egypt. We don't know what happens in the next chapter, but believer in Jesus, we know what happens in the last chapter. You know what happens in the last chapter. And you may feel stuck this morning. It's a bit like Easter, it's only not, not, not that long ago. Your whole life may feel like Holy Saturday. That day between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. When it looks for all the world that God is silent. And maybe your life you feel that the bad guys have won, evil is victorious, the good guys have been defeated and God is silent. But if you're a Christian, we know that Jesus rose from the dead. And we know he's coming again. And he's going to make everything crooked straight again. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This isn't an empty hope, my friend. I really hope that you think I'm not just here giving some kind of pep talk, some moral pep talk, because the Christian's hope is a firm hope that's rooted in history. And it's rooted in the history of God's dealings with his people from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way to Christ on the cross. Do you know Jesus, my friend? Do you know the Lord Jesus? Do you know the Lord Jesus, God's precious son? God has many sons and daughters, but he only has one natural son. One only begotten son. And Christ was the beloved son of the Father. And they stripped his cloak from him. He was sprayed with his own blood. He was beaten. He was the scapegoat. And we know that he is better than Joseph, the favoured son of his father, who was betrayed by his own family, thrown and sold into slavery. So Jesus, betrayed by his people, betrayed by those he thought loved him. He was killed, crucified, handed over to the devil. But he lives. He lives. And it isn't the end of his story, and it's not the end of your story. Though Jesus was hated, though the chief priests were jealous of him, though they crucified him, he sits today, the dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven, better than second in command to Pharaoh. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. My dear friend, however bleak your life may seem to you this morning, you can preview the end, you can preview the end, and Jesus comes back. The saints overcome and every tear is wiped away.
the dead in Christ will be raised and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So if you feel this morning stuck in a pit or stuck in a slave, as a slave in Potiphar's house, you can know that God has you, maybe not where you want to be, but where he wants you. And if you don't know Jesus, then the, Jew, the news is not good for you when you stand before God on Judgment Day, having been strangers and aliens. But the good news of the Gospel is that the grace of the Gospel is available today. And if you belong to him today, you can be assured of a happy ending, a better ending than Joseph is going to get in Egypt. And you can know and rest secure, no matter what pain, what wound, what uncertainty, that there is a happy ending for God's people. So my friend, not every dream will do, but God's plans always come true. And that is our glorious hope. May the Lord bless the word for his glory. Amen.